just finished my cup of tea. We're uh, continuing in our series through the letter of 1 Thessalonians. So if you're new today, uh, sorry, but you're sort of landing in midway through, but that's okay. Um, I believe and trust there is blessing for all of us if we uh, give ourselves to listening and hearing God's word. So we're going to read together, uh, starting at verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is God's word. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is God's word. We're sort of towards the end of our series now, as I mentioned in First Thessalonians, called Transforming Community. And the idea is that within the community of the local church, based around the good news of Jesus, people experience transformation. That is, that is ordinary for those who know Jesus. Transformation. And that looks different for each of us. And we saw last week uh, some practical teaching. Paul start, starts into the practical teaching. He says it will transform your relationships with one another. You'll be pure in your attitude towards one another. And secondly, he says it'll transform your, your work ethic, your attitude to money and your drive to work. And so we come now to this part, uh, another part of practical teaching within the transforming community. Paul addresses the issue of death and grief and more specifically what happens after death. Death is one of those topics that we're all going to have to deal with at some point or other in our lives if you haven't already. Uh, but yet, of course, it's more than just a topic of polite conversation. Death and grieving for many people, in fact, for all people, eventually will be a, a reality that you will deal with. It'll be something that you experience, part of the common experience of humankind. Doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, doesn't matter what culture you're from, what country you live in, what time in the history of humankind you're from, death and grief is part of what we will all experience in many different ways, but we will experience it. Human grief is, is the response to that loss, especially the loss of a loved one, death. So grief is the human response to loss. Grief is natural. It can be a healthy way to react and respond to the death of other people. But for others, grieving can take on a life of its own. It can become all-consuming. It can become, for some people, something that eats away, that drains the life out of them, something that traps them and stops them from progressing in life. It can, if we are not careful, disable 
our ability to love, to experience joy, to develop resilience. And according to the Apostle Paul in these verses, there is something unique about the Christian response to death, especially the death of fellow believers in Jesus. He says it is unlike anything else. Because in Christianity, there is a form of grieving that is radically honest, being real about the pain of loss, an expression of that. But also, at the same time, it is intensely hopeful because it allows us to see loss on the broader backdrop of the Christian story. And so Paul says in verse 13, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, he's addressing the entire church, about those who are asleep. That is his term, as we'll see later why. That is his term for those who are dead. They're asleep. I don't want you to be uninformed. Don't you want, don't you want you to get the wrong end of the stick here or hear the wrong teaching? He says, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. I want you to get this right on, he says. Because the way a Christian grieves is different, very different, from other people who don't share the Christian faith. It sounds like there is some misunderstanding that has crept in to the church of Thessalonica. Don't forget these Christians that Paul is writing to are weeks, if not months, old in their faith. They have turned from paganism, from the religion of the ancient Near East, to follow Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ. Radical, massive transformation. And yet, don't forget, back in the early part of the letter, we saw that Paul and Silas and Timothy were wrenched away from the church. They were chased out of the city by a mob. And so there's always that sense of unfinished business that we have more to do here. And so perhaps this teaching was one of those things they just wanted to highlight again. So important to the church. I believe there are three basic forms of grief in our contemporary society. Three basic forms. That doesn't mean to say that everybody fits neatly into one of these categories, but for the sake of argument, let's think of three basic forms towards grieving. First form is, is called religious, what I'm calling religious grief, a religious type of grief. The second method of grieving, if you like, is irreligious grief. And the third thing I'm going to put to you, the third type of grief is gospel grief. Okay, so we'll see those three as we go through. First of all, in our society out there, people outside the church, if you like, we see religious grief. Now, religious grief is characterized by those people who accept some kind of spiritual realm, some kind of out there. They, they embrace the likelihood of an afterlife. And that's not too dissimilar from the, the, the religious and cultural background of the people of Thessalonica to whom this letter was written. They lived among people who generally acknowledged, yes, there is a spirit world out there. Yes, there are, you know, gods and spirits and what have you out there. And so today we find this form among those who belong to various kinds of organized religion. But we also find this kind of grief among those who don't belong to any organized religion but consider themselves spiritual. They acknowledge the spirit world 
out there somewhere. Just think for a moment about some of the things you hear, maybe, or see on social media, or hear among colleagues at work, or even see on TV. The kind of way that people respond to death. You might hear comments like this. He's in a better place now. She's up there dancing with the angels. He, he, he's up there looking down on us. Rest in peace. See, all these comments are based on the acceptance of a spiritual realm out there somewhere, that the dead are somehow still in existence, some in, in some sort of spiritual realm. Something's just out there. And religious grief might be accompanied by works or practices, such as praying for the dead in some situations. People collect feathers. People become fascinated with angels. People set up shrines for those they've lost. For sometimes, for some people, grieving takes the form uh, through official church teachings regarding purgatory and mass for the dead. For other people, it might be the case of setting up charities in the name of loved ones so that something good may come. This is a very common response, a very common form of grief in our society. But the problem is, when you examine that a little more carefully, much of it is built on a hope that there's something out there. But in reality, oftentimes, there is no convincing evidence that those things are true. What is intended, I believe, to provide hope and comfort when you dig down, when you actually drill down and think about it, it will ultimately produce anxiety. How do you know they're in a better place? How do you know they're, they're looking down on you? Based on what? How can you have confidence and peace about it? See, a lack of knowing, a lack of certainty will ultimately lead, if you push it to its logical conclusion, will ultimately lead to anxiety and more grief. That's the religious form of grief that's very common among our contemporaries in our post-Christian society. But there's a second form of grief I mentioned at the start. Irreligious grief. Irreligious grief. In some ways, it's the polar opposite to the religious form of grieving. Whereas religious grief is, is built on the acceptance of a spiritual realm, of something out there, irreligious grief rejects this entirely. Not that there's something out there, they would say, but that there's nothing out there. People who sort of follow this irreligious form of grief are often themselves atheists or skeptics. They say there's nothing out there. There's nothing other than what you can see and feel. There is no God over us. There is no spirit realm. Therefore, there is no moral or, or spiritual absolute. There is no, therefore no ultimate purpose in life or in death. And according to this approach, death is just simply the inevitable consequence of life. It happens to all things. You come from dust and you go back to the dust. It's just a cycle. This is what happens to animals. It's what happens to stars in the galaxy. It's what happens to people. You come, you exist, 
and then you cease to exist. And that's it. There is no point getting upset about it. There's no grounds for being upset. It's just natural that all things come to an end, and that's it. These people tend to be less emotional about grief. That's just the way it is, so let's just get on with it and get moving. This form of irreligious grief is summarized by a man called Bertrand Russell. He's dead now, uh, but he's an atheist philosopher. He's a writer, a thinker. And he argued that all human relationships, all human labor, everything that is beautiful, everything that is glorious about life, everything that is stunning will one day become extinct in the vast death of the solar system, resulting, he says, henceforth in an unyielding despair of the soul. See, whereas the, the, the religious form of grieving, ultimately, if you push it to its conclusions, produces anxiety, the irreligious form of grieving, when you push it to its conclusions, results in despair, as Bertrand Russell so candidly put it. But listen, I'm not saying that people actually live or grieve all the time like this. In fact, it's practically impossible. And that's actually the point I'm trying to get at. It is almost impossible to live consistently with religious grief or irreligious grief when pushed to its conclusion. People learn to get by through behaving in ways that are inconsistent with the way that they believe. The irreligious cannot deny a sense of sorrow and a sense of loss when they feel that they feel when responding to death, even if they cannot explain it. The religious people cannot explain the basis of their spirituality, even if they put all their hope in it. Religious grief, irreligious grief. And thirdly, I want to I talk and highlight this, and spend more time in gospel grief. What is different then about the way a Christian should grieve? That is what Paul turns to in the rest of this passage we're going to look at just now. Look down at verse 14. He says this, We believe, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. He says that because of the gospel to the church, your grieving will be transformed from hopeless grieving to hopeful grieving. All because Jesus died and rose again. On the basis of that, says Paul, those who die in Christ will be raised and will return one day with him. We covered this at Easter a few weeks ago. We looked at this thing called the doctrine of union with Christ. And Paul is highlighting it here again. What happened to Jesus happened to us. When Jesus died, we died with him. When he rose, we shall rise with him. It seems to be in the church of Thessalonica. There was fear among the church about Christians who have died already believing in Jesus, that somehow they might miss out on the return of Jesus when he, when he comes back. You know, the, this concept of the coming, the returning of Jesus is incredibly important 
for not only the Christian story, but more specifically, our understanding of grieving. This word, the coming, it actually refers to it back in, in, down in verse 15. Um, where is it? Yeah. We who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord. That's not just a, a, a basic word. That's a very specific word, coming. It's a technical word in the original Greek. Christians look forward to the coming of Jesus. The word coming refers to a, a commander or a visiting king or a dignitary making a visit to a city. And in that way, Christians are awaiting the return of Jesus, the king. But coming has a, another shade of meaning as well in the original Greek. It talks about suddenness, a sudden appearing, almost like a great flash of thunder. Lightning. So Jesus coming is his return in splendor as the king, but it's sudden so that all people will see it. And at that time, as we see elsewhere in the Bible, Jesus will then usher in the new age of the kingdom, the perfected new heavens and the new earth. You can start to see, I hope. This is where the Christian's hope begins around this great overarching storyline of the Bible. Paul wants to reassure the church. He says in verse 15, this is a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The dead are not forgotten, says Paul. They're not left out. They will come first when Jesus arrives in glory and splendor. He says this, this is how it's going to happen in verse 16. The Lord will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord. Maybe the irreligious or the skeptical person will listen to this and think, you know what, that, that is exactly why I don't like religion. All this flying up into the air and the clouds and all these fairy stories. Maybe the religious person will listen to that and say, that's exactly what I believe too. That the dead are up there in the, in the cloud somewhere. But I want to show you that both of those people are wrong. See, what we're reading here is this uh, Paul using what scholars call apocalyptic language. There's a specific type of, of writing you see in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament Hebrew, in the New Testament Greek. What is apocalyptic language? I guess the closest thing we have in today's culture is science fiction or fantasy writing, or maybe like some of the Marvel comics, you know, that have been made into movies. The idea is that these movies and these, these writings depict some sort of fierce, evil powers and monsters and machines that are about to come and destroy and take over the world. And yet, whether it's Superman or the Avengers or the Black Panther or whoever it happens to be, they step in, they bring salvation to the people, they rescue the world. And we know when we go to see these movies and read these books that they're metaphors often for a greater story, for a bigger point that's being made by the story writers or the filmmakers to convey a deeper meaning. And so in some ways that's close to the ancient use of apocalyptic. That's somewhere close to what Paul is getting at in these verses. Apocalyptic writing conveys truth 
but not always in a literal way. We don't know how much of this stuff will happen, actually, in terms of going into the sky and into the clouds and floating in the air, but this much is true. This much is true. When Jesus returns, every eye will see and every ear will hear him coming. It won't be done in the quiet in the corner. It will be a cosmic event. He will issue the cry, the trumpet, the voice. Everyone will hear, the living and the dead, that the king has come. Even the cloud is a a well-known biblical term, often denoting the presence of God himself. When the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, what were they doing? Where were they going? They were following the clouds. When the tabernacle was put together, the presence of God came down like a cloud and filled the place. When Jesus went up to the mountain with Peter, James and John and was transfigured, he became like a glorified body for a few moments. What happened? A cloud came and covered them. When Jesus ascended after his death and resurrection, what happened? A cloud came and took him to heaven. In the same way, clouds here signify the presence of God. You will be with the Lord always. The point with all this, folks, the point that Paul is getting at is in verse 18, is to encourage one another with these words. Are you encouraged? All is not lost. The dead in Christ shall participate in the glorious return of Jesus one day. They are not lost. They are not forgotten. They come first. Let me, let me take what we're reading here in these verses in 1 Thessalonians and, and try and nail it down a bit more by referring to a, 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 an amazing story in the Gospels, in John chapter 11. It tells us about this episode between Jesus and his friends Mary and Martha, who are sisters, and their brother, a man called Lazarus. Great friends. And Jesus one day heard that Lazarus was ill. And so he left it for two days, and eventually he went to Bethany, where they lived, and and went to visit his good friend Lazarus and the family to see how they were getting along. And John tells us that on the way, a member of the, uh, the village or whatever, the family, came and said to Jesus, look, Lazarus, whom you love, is, is dead. And so Jesus, not put off, carried on walking towards the place he wanted to visit the family. And he was met down the road later on by Martha, one of the sisters. And she said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here when he was sick, he wouldn't have died. Jesus responded to her. He said, Martha, your brother will rise again. Do you believe that? She said, yes, I believe in the resurrection. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet he'll live. She probably had no idea what he's really meaning at that stage. And so Jesus carries on. And eventually arrives there and he sees the other sister, Mary, weeping. And he sees the others from the village weeping. 
And it says that Jesus himself, Jesus, was deeply moved in his spirit. He was deeply troubled. And then in this amazing verse, two words, it said, Jesus wept. The Son of God, the one who was one with the Father from all eternity, Jesus wept for the loss of his friend. Jesus grieved. And it says he was deeply moved again. And he went to the tomb. The tomb was a cave, cut in the rock. And there was a stone across the entrance. Move it away, Jesus said. They tried to protest, saying, Lord, he's been in there, he's been dead for two days, it's going to smell really bad. Move it away, he said. And then it says, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Jesus spoke to a dead guy. And it said, the man who had died came out, wrapped up in grave clothes. Unbind him, Jesus said, and let him go. We have a picture here in John 11 of Jesus doing in a limited sense what he will one day do in a global sense. Jesus, first of all, shows it's okay to grieve. It is right to grieve. But he does it with hope. Jesus wept. He was moved. He was deeply pained and troubled. He'd lost his friend. He knew the pain of separation. Jesus was angry at death itself. He was angry at the mess of sin and brokenness. And so he grieved, perhaps grieved deeper than any human being had ever grieved. He was sorrowful. And yet, it was not hopeless. His grieving was hopeful. Jesus spoke to a dead man. The cry of command, the voice of the archangel, the only thing Jesus lacked was a trumpet. If he had it, he probably would have blown it as well. The dead heard and obeyed. The dead was called to life. And that is, that is what Paul is getting at in these verses here. That is what Jesus demonstrates at the grave of his friend. One day there will be a reunion, says Paul, shows Jesus. One day we will all be together. How beautiful is that? How do we know this isn't just a nice little story? A convenient tale. We know as Christians, because the Bible tells us so, that the grave of Lazarus pointed forward to another grave. The miracle of resurrection of Lazarus prefigured Jesus' own death and resurrection. The tomb, the cave, the stone across the entrance. I am the resurrection. And here's how. The gospel shows us that Jesus took the path to the cross alone to guarantee our hope to become our resurrection. 
All of this turns on the fact that Jesus died and rose again. Because Jesus rose, so shall we. And therefore, as Christians, we can grieve deeply, but we can grieve with great hope that those who die in Christ shall be raised again and we shall be reunited in the Lord. As I finish, let's think about three practical applications to this teaching. Number one, first application. This teaching changes our approach to grief. Because of the gospel, the irreligious skeptic can be released to truly grieve. They can know that death is real, that emotions represent the real response to reality. It's not just a social construction. Because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, life has meaning and purpose and a goal. The irreligious person can truly grieve. But because of the gospel, the religious person can have shape and content and grounds to their hope. A real future, a real resurrection, a real reunion with those who die believing in Jesus. And even as as Christians, we can find ourselves often veering towards one side or the other. Religious grief or irreligious grief. But when we understand this, when we see what Jesus has done, when we allow the gospel of Jesus deeper into our souls, we can grieve more fully, perhaps where it has been suppressed. Or we can grieve with hope. That brings a transformation to our grieving process. Firstly, this teaching changes your approach to grief. Secondly, let it supply us as a church with a fresh zeal to share the gospel with those who don't know. See, this hope that we're reading about here is for all those who are in Christ when they die. Therefore, as a church, it is imperative, it is imperative that people hear the good news from us and from you. So let's allow this teaching to fire us up. Let us go from wherever we are in our evangelistic zeal to many degrees more. Even just a couple more degrees of heat in your evangelistic zeal this week. Even if your your zeal for evangelism, sharing the good news is zero out of ten, let's go to one out of ten this week. If you're at seven, let's go to eight or nine. If you're at ten, keep going. The scale doesn't finish there. Invite your unbelieving friends and family to church. Why not take a flyer and talk to someone about Jesus at work? Share what you've been doing this weekend. Why don't you meet with that person who just seems open to talking about spiritual things. Who knows where it goes? Not every meeting you have to seal the deal and bring that person on their knees to Jesus. But maybe you can be the person who opens their minds with the power of the Spirit, shows them a little more about Jesus. There is urgency in this, folks, sharing the good news. But let's make this a hopeful urgency. changes our approach to grief, supplies fresh zeal to share the gospel, and thirdly and finally, let's allow this teaching to broaden 
our understanding on the big picture that the Bible shows us. Let's be informed as believers about the grand storyline of the Christian faith, the Christian hope that Jesus, who came and died for our sins and rose on the third day and ascended to the right hand of the Father, will come again in glory as the King coming to take up residence into the new heavens and the new earth. We're not there yet. That's why we hope for what we don't have. Much of this remains unclear in the Bible as to how it's going to happen. Definitely it remains unclear as to when it's going to happen. But on the weight of the promises of God's word, we can know for certain that it will happen. Jesus is coming back again. And he says, behold, I make all things new. Therefore, as Paul says, encourage one another with these words. Amen. Let's pray, folks. Father God, these are difficult teachings. They may be very new to us. They sound very unusual. And yet we receive them because they are your word. And you know, Father God, what we need to hear. And so we pray that we would receive them with faith and we would receive them in a way that transforms us. We pray for your Holy Spirit to come and open our minds, to help us to understand what you're saying here. That we may be genuinely, truly encouraged by seeing what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as we come to share the bread and the wine, may you remind us as we eat and drink, as we take Christ into us by faith, remind us of our union with him, that what happened to him happens to us through faith in his name and the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Saviour and our coming King. Amen. Amen. <laughs>